Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Like a broken record, magically repaired. Our guests today are John Bertle and Alana Mann. John Bertle, it could be anything. And Alana Mann, she's a real fire starter. <laughs> In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about the guests as you listen to the show. John Bertle is a native of California and is now an artist based in Los Angeles, California. He's involved in numerous collective, collaborative ventures such as Eternal Telethon, K-Chung Radio, and Citizens Promoting a More Pleasurable Public. He also recently had a solo show at Michael Benevento uh, called Support Constructs. Alana Mann is an artist based in Los Angeles. She's in a three-person show opening on April 19th at Thomas Solomon, curated by John Souza. She's also founded a number of collectives, including the Artists Bailout Collective, the People's Microphony Camarada, and is part of the collaborative duo since 2005, Chan and Man. Damn. Damn. <laughs> John Bertle and Alana Mann, welcome to the people. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Thanks for so having much. Us, Matt and Ben. <laughs> yeah. You guys first worked together uh, on a project that, that Alana, you had put together called Exchange Rate. You uh, curated John into this project. What, what was Exchange Rate? Yeah, so I started Exchange Rate right before the 2008 presidential elections, and it involved around 16, no, 38 artists from 16 different countries that were all creating artwork in response to the election campaign. And on the night of the uh, election, November 4th, there was a big event here in Los Angeles and a lot of performances that happened. And also simultaneous to the performances were television screens all over the performance space that were showcasing the performances that were happening on network news. So there was kind of like this simultaneous performativity happening. And John Bertel and John Barlog um, created an amazing project for that evening as well, which was in the form of two bags, I think. We were debating whether yeah, it was two I think bags it, or one. I'm not sure if it was one bag that had <laughs> different writing on each side or if it was two bags. But um, in either case, uh, one of the sides or one of the bags said uh, open in case of victory and on the other side it said open in case of defeat. And then inside, if it was two bags, <laughs> inside one would be um, the victory bag would be like party favors, confetti, maybe balloons. Um, and in the opening case of defeat, it would be like a hanky to cry into <laughs> or um, things that maybe console a sad person. And did you open the... Uh... We gave them to people at the event right wow. after the election was announced. I was at that event. Wonderful. It was amazing. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was like... One of those moments that you remember very fondly because it, you know, seemed to be hopeful. 
<laughs> seemed. Who who else was involved? So did Adam do the go underground performance? Oh my god, there? yes. Yeah, I love that. Adam did this performance where he This is Adam Overton. Adam Overton. Okay. Friend um, of the show. Friend of the show. And it was a score Liz wrote, Liz mm, Glenn wrote yeah. that was Go Underground or something like that was kind of the Yeah, I forget I forget exactly what the score was, but um it was something about yeah, burying or excavating. Yeah. Um, or going underground and and basically he um, inserted his head into a bucket of sand for the entire evening um, and then had a little spigot like a snorkel where he breathed through and and then he positioned himself right in front of a television screen so (laughs) it was kind of like yeah just embodying what we all felt all this nervousness and kind of not wanting to know what was going to happen, even though everyone really wanted to know what was going to happen. Uh, but it was a really incredible night because just being together during this supercharged evening was really meaningful. Um, and I think that that's a theme that runs through both of my work and John's work Definitely. in terms of like being with other people during these moments. Mm-hmm. And how did you first encounter John's work, or how did you find out about his... So we went to school together and actually the first at CalArts and the first piece of John's that I remember encountering is one of my all-time favorite pieces and it involved um, a gallery doorknob. So at CalArts there's there are these galleries that students have chosen and for his (laughs) show John had the gallery doors closed and inaccessible. And then on one of the doorknobs, he covered it with hair, human hair. And I just thought it was one of the best things that I had seen at CalArts. And I still believe that <laughs> to this day. <laughs> is it, well, would that kind of, pra- I mean, is it too old of a piece for you to talk about that? I don't know. It might be, though I have been thinking about remaking it, so I, should, I guess I should figure out how to talk about it. But We'll try it right now. Um, I mean, I think it was, like, like a lot of the objects that I make are very abject and um, confrontational, and I think especially at that point, I was really interested in how I could take uh, something that people encounter really regularly, like a doorknob, and make it... Um, just kind of disrupt that regularity and make it a little bit more, just make them think while they're going through it a little bit more, maybe. So, like, say, extension cords hold the same power with you, right? right. right. Is it, can we talk about this? I don't know. Well, this is all really old work. Yeah, I mean, um, well, I well, I used to be the right. studio manager at CalArts. Uh-huh. I also went there, but I was the studio manager, and, uh, uh, and John was a student when I was there, and... Uh, of the many wonderful experiences I had with you and John Barlog and Jackson and all those cats. Uh, One was one morning uh, when I came in in the facilities management, people told me that a bunch of uh, extension cords had gone missing. Uh, And at the same time in the main gallery at CalArts, there was a piece that was uh, four posts. You stop me if this is wrong. Four posts with extension cords like winding all the way up like really tightly knit around all four posts all the way to the top. So it was like four walls of extension right. cords on this, I don't know, six by six by six right. cube thing made of mm-hmm. extension cords. And then, and they were all sort of, there was like 220 cords and like 
you know, all sorts of extension cords just attached to each other and then just plugged into the regular like 120 volt plug in the wall. And so what happens there <laughs> is uh, that the cords get really, really hot and the whole structure started was collapsing on itself. And uh, it's it's a fond, terrible memory of mine. Well, that I wanted it to collapse on itself, right. and there was a lot of um, concern amongst uh, members of the administration that it was a safety hazard. Oh, because it totally is. <laughs> but it, it actually was fine and didn't collapse on itself. Right. But in the same show, I had made this piece that was like a a circular ring of hopscotch that right, was made yeah. out of sand. Oh, I remember yeah. that, actually. And so it was like infinite hopscotch that yeah. people would play. And, I remember that, too. Yeah. And um, that destroyed the floor yeah, because people, like, the sand ground into the... Nobody, like, I told everybody about both projects, and nobody mentioned anything about the sand hopscotch, but they were really worried about the extension cord <laughs> heavy metal piece. And but this, the sand hopscotch. was much more destructive. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And we don't, we don't have to stick on your old work. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but or maybe talk about, or you know what, before we move on to you guys' individual new work, Let's talk more about like your collaborative stuff, like Eternal Telethon. You want to go on that for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the Eternal Telethon is a project that was founded, I think, in maybe 2009 by uh, Akina Cox, Nico Solario, Chad Dilly, Ina Villablasus, and myself. Um, and it's still going on. We're possibly planning one for this summer. And... Um, it's a little bit less frequent. It's kind of on a little bit of a low. I feel like for the last three years, we've maybe done one or two. Um, but the first time that, and I should say the project is a fundraiser to start an artist retirement home. Um, and so through the course of doing these live telethons that function very much like a kind of Jerry Lewis telethon where there's like a guest that will perform, whether it's like a comedy on with, in a traditional telethon, it would be more like comedy or music or, and I guess that's pretty close, but maybe <laughs> there's more of like a performance art bent on the eternal telethon. Um, and then there's people playing the role more of a host, kind of introducing the telethon, asking for contributions. Um, and it was all live stream online. So there could be discussion between the people watching either online or in the room and the performers and hosts. Um, and I think that also worked really well for documenting it because it was all performance for video. So the videos now don't feel as kind of secondary as a lot of performance documentation. Um, and Alana did a project a, a couple times where it was the Eternal Eternal News Network. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> ENN. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, where she would interview artists through... Tell, tell us about it, yeah. Alana. Yeah, so <laughs> I basically, I had a satellite dish hat and um, a microphone with ENN on it, and I would Skype with artists around the world and interview them. Um, so the first time there were artists, gosh, from all over Singapore, Puerto Rico, um, Europe... I'm blanking on all of the places. Um, and then the second time was with an Egyptian artist. 
Um, and this was shortly after the Arab Spring, maybe like six months after. Um, yeah, I'd love to do that project again, maybe at the next Eternal Telephone. Yeah. <laughs> but it was great because it it um, gave a chance for those artists to have a voice within the Eternal Telethon. And because it was Ustreamed, then it was like another layer of video technology and communication technology that was integrated. Um, and so the video could just, the camera person could just focus on the, my little computer screen. <laughs> um, and then audience members could also ask questions to those artists. And it was really open, so some of them would be there like with their child just saying hey how's it going and then other people would be doing performances on Skype and so it really depended the Egyptian artist actually asked me not to wear that special hat and wanted it to be a bit more somber and serious and his point was to um that he wanted western artists to come to Egypt and he felt like it was really important at that time mm. um but the thing that I really really uh, resonated with me about the internal telethon and I think that it's the same thing can be said of Kei Chung is that I feel like both of them are projects where there are spaces created for absolute permission for anything to take place so there's like no expectation necessarily of something that has to be a certain way mm -hmm. but that it's uh, this kind of space that you know anything really could happen and that's just so rare I think in first of all in the world in general but also in the art world of just like you know here's here's like a platform or here's a venue or here's like a sound wave like what do you want to do you could do anything and so that's just been really wonderful to be a part of and witness both of those projects it's been really um powerful and and both projects John has been a huge part of and kind of initiator of. Yeah, and the um, the gather or the tattoo on mine and John's arms kind of function in a similar way. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, d describe that. Yeah, so it's a it's a two by four inch rectangular tattoo. It's a single outline, um, and people do projects inside. Um, and ju and just to be clear, just because we're list on the radio, yeah, it's, it's on our forearms. It's that it's and it's tattooed on your forearm and also John John Barlog John Barlog. So um, on the top of our forearms, and um, we got them, I believe, in two thousand and seven, um, and since then, uh, yeah, they've been utilized for drawings, performances, sculptures, uh, photos. And so it's just like a small outline that then any artist you allow to like do something in that space, like with a Sharpie or yeah, something? Yeah, like right now um, you can barely see it, but I have a piece by Marco Syrif, who's done several um, works on our arms, probably more than anybody, and also was involved with the telethon. Um, it's kind of, it's faded. I did restorations once, but um, they're starting to come off. But it was a bowling ball, so there's like the three holes, so you could like stick your finger in the bowl. Um, but so yeah, that's that's kind of a piece that he did pretty quickly. Some other ones, like people have ordered temporary tattoos or uh, made like a, yeah elaborate things that are strapped on. 
Has there ever been a project that you've said no to? Yeah, a lot, actually. Several people have asked to, you know, like scarification, burns. Mm -hmm. Um, We say no to those. Yeah. I think the one that we debated the most was somebody wanted to shave off our eyebrows and then glue them in the space. (laughs) And, and, And I think... One of us was working uh, like full time, kind of like, uh, like pretty like suit and tie type job, and didn't want to deal with his coworkers, um, like negotiating that with his coworkers. Sure, so yeah. we didn't we turned that one down, and the artist ended up cutting some of our hair and gluing it on, and then cutting some of her hair and gluing it on the bottom. So in this weird, and she had red hair. Um, Kelly Klein was the artist, and so like John's was like red and brown, and mine was kind of like blonde and brown, and they kind of looked like Rothkos, but um, were with like these sheets of hair. It, it was really weird. Beautiful. Yeah, it was. It was a cool piece. Well, uh, Alana's already said it very well, but c- can you maybe specifically do you guys' tattoo piece? Like, talk about that as a as a temporary autonomous zone, but like different than like because it's on your body. Right. Like, how does it function differently because it's actually on on you versus a yeah. a ratty, I mean, a beautiful space in Chinatown. Chinatown yeah, above a fight, above a restaurant. We're not saying where it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's way different. Um, both in that I have a lot more intimate relationship with it, and um, even if other people get the tattoo, it's outside. Like, that will be outside of me. And this one will always be with me. Like me and John have a different relationship to it. Um, we do projects together whenever the artist wants to and whenever it's physically available, but that doesn't happen all the times. Um, and I think also with this one, there's like our, we've always felt it was more, or at least I personally have always felt it was, I think John would agree that it was really important with this to like, not curate it like we really wanted it to just be like giving a space to anybody that wants to use it Mm. um and while i think other projects that happens too this is probably the one where it was most important for us so at this point like whenever somebody asks oh like what is that i explain it and we almost always say would you like to do something Mm. um and now we're like i think we're going to have a couple of curators curating it coming up, which is exciting. That's happened a couple times in the past, but that's probably the direction we'll go more with it because then it's almost like a non-issue. It's just somebody else is making those decisions. Yeah. Right. Well, and both of you, um, your work uh, many times is manifested by like creating some kind of specific platform for other artists. Um and that seems like something that is, I know a lot of different people in LA that do this, but, but you guys seem to pull it off rather well or be right there with like other organizations. Um, why, why are you, why are you each drawn to that kind of thing? Do you think? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a lot of my solo work is also about, um, human interaction and communication and miscommunication and um, right now I've been working on the theme of listening for the past three or four years so it's 
sort of a natural outgrowth, I think, of my interests to then bring that, that those desires or those, um, you know, research questions or whatever into a group dynamic. Um, and so, yeah, so I feel like they both really go hand in hand, although um, at one point I definitely desired to just do one or the other <laughs> I've kind of come come to peace with like no I just I like doing both um and certainly different projects have explored different things so um the artist bailout collective was started after the economic collapse in the United States and it was meant to raise money just to temporary emergency funds for artist projects um which I think has a lot of connections with the eternal telethon mm-hmm. um and yeah and then the people's microphony camerata which was another collective i started with um juliana snapper um who's a an opera singer and a musician um that was an exploration of the technologies being used by protest movements specifically the occupy movement but um technologies that have been used there are these themes of kind of working together um, and seeing like what that dialogue or what those interactions can generate. Um, And that's been um, just a really wonderful part of my practice and also something I've really enjoyed about being in LA because I have um, other artists that I can collaborate with or participate in their projects as well. And then colleagues that are working similarly so we can have um, we can kind of share and I don't know shop talk and and sort of then maybe push each other further um, in in our investigations too. Well, you brought you brought a bit of audio with you. Um, do you want to set it up for us before we take a break? Yeah. So this piece is from the People's Microphony Camerata, and it's by the poet Andrew Choate, and it's called "I Smell the Blood," uh, and it was performed in the spring of 2011 and recorded then. Um, and here it is.
Welcome back to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM. Or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please, please, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more. Joining us today are John Bertel and Alana Mann. So we were talking about um, platforms for kind of art happening, uh, performances, kind of curatorial platforms. And um, I, we were, I think all of us in the back of our minds were thinking, is this something specific to Los Angeles? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think that there's something special that happens here that's different than other places and partly I want to say that there's this history of collective and collaborative action here that um that that sort of that history is like in the air we breathe or kind of on the ground that we're walking on um but I mean the further that I dig into LA history the more that I find out about um you know, like the this black arts collective called Studio Z that David Hammonds was a part of and Sengen and Goody and Ulysses Jenkins and all these amazing people and, of course, the feminist movement and um, all of these other collaborative and collective projects that have happened here. And I think that um, something that I've heard from the people that were involved in those kind of projects uh, back in the 60s and 70s, um, they talk about it as like a matter of survival, like they needed this thing to survive (laughs) and I kind of feel like the same is true here like I kind of need these projects to to keep me going in some ways I don't know if you feel that way John yeah I totally agree with that like um with all of it like yeah there's so there's so many historical examples um I know ASCO was really important for me when I was a lot younger and um Woman House and yeah the and that's all a really rich context to be working in. And people just aren't aware of that history or don't feel like it's relevant to them in other places as much. Um, and there's a ton of freedom that comes with like with working in a space like that. Um, and that kind of gets back to what we were talking about before the break. But like definitely, um, well, there was a show that Alana curated that me and John Barlog were in in 2009 called Performing Economies. And John and I did a piece where we um, we kind of like created alternate rules for using English language within the space. So in s- the only pronoun that was used was we. Um, there was no command form and there was no possessive. So instead of like... Um, instead of like pass me my my glass you would say can we pass the glass um or something like that so um and tom mckenzie who was the the director of the space at the time he we asked him to like use this language in his day-to-day kind of um runnings of the space um i don't think we would have felt very comfortable if it wasn't somebody that we believed in as an artist and had a close relationship with like approaching like a space that we didn't know with this weird piece that was kind of demanding um and I think that's 
that's a huge thing that comes with with working with like artist organizers um so that's a one big part of it is just like the freedom that comes with that and then i think another part is artists are especially in los angeles there's so many of these spaces are very specific you know if you think about like k chung or um or even things like machine where participation is so present um or like public fiction how their program is so based around curating group shows that have a very specific kind of agenda and different very different from show to show like i don't think somebody that doesn't identify or that isn't used to taking that much creative license would feel comfortable imposing that framework or asking people to participate in such a specific framework does that make sense yeah Yeah. definitely i mean do you on that tip do you like clearly like the idea of getting people together like artists together in a community is is not specific to los angeles but we have a we probably i don't know we probably have a special version of it like can you like speak to what you think maybe that special version of off air we were talking about how you know new york would be different because every it's a very very small it's a smaller geographical area right so it's easier for people to get together artists to get together and talk like on the regular but here that's that's not the case we all live in different parts of the city and so how, how do you think that, that 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 geographical aspect of this like plays into like this desire to to generate community or plays against it yeah well i mean i definitely think that the people is part of that effort to bring people together whoop, whoop. and <laughs> generate dialogue and and conversation um so I guess in LA, the issue is pressed more and and artists have to really make a conscious choice rather than just going with the flow or mm-hmm. plugging into what's already happening. Like artists really have to think, okay, do I wanna be part of something or do I wanna make something that's not here already or add to what I see happening, but I don't see this or that specific thing happening and I want to create that um so so yeah I think that there's just like that extra step that we need to take because we're kind of so isolated in some ways too yeah yeah and I think traditionally not I mean like New York's always had a really strong like art market and like so many like large institutions and um from my understanding like that type of market is like a relatively recent thing to LA and it's still not anywhere close to what it's like in New York. Um, so I think we like, there's all people have been making art more because like there isn't a set path that's laid out in LA for what a successful career looks like that I think is a lot more established. Like that idea of what a successful artist is in other places. Um, but I don't know. I mean, New York's just one example. I I would be really curious about like San uh, Francisco. Yeah, for example. or or like yeah, um or just Portland, Portland is we or like yeah. Miami or right. Detroit or right. um like there's lots of other places and yeah, I'm not totally informed about what's going on there, so I feel a little reluctant to be like, "Oh, this is totally a Los Angeles thing." Right. But <laughs> I I get the sense that it like it's happening here and it's happening other places, but it's happening a lot right now, right here. Let's talk about y'all solo work 
Yeah, John had a really beautiful show at Michael Benevento, um, his first solo show there. Um, and it was two gallery spaces because um, the gallery is kind of split and has another space in between. Um, and there was a, uh, a number of paintings in the show, but also there's a way that John works with paint really sculpturally and um, really brings this notion of the body and the presence of the, um, the human body on material, but also um, really engages a viewer's body in the sort of um, taking in of the work or perception of the work. Yeah, like scale is definitely something I, I think about a lot. I'm still trying to work out, but yeah, I mean the show had like a wide range of scale. Actually, there were. I mean, I think what I loved about that show are there were these like kind of smaller objects that I honestly I thought of them as like gestural sculpture, um, and then there were much larger, more involved pieces, but. What I liked about scale in that show is that even the larger pieces seem like retain some of the gestural feeling that the smaller pieces had. The smaller pieces uh, of yours, they're very charming. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but you, you, the scale is like a is a strategy to talk about to talk about the body. Yeah. in a way like how, how does that work like or how do you want that to work yeah i mean the, like, like there was one piece that was a large flower that I, like i think it's like it's just about bigger than our average arms width it's like 70 inches or something so i wanted to make a piece that was just a little bit bigger than like a person so it would mm -hmm. kind of take up their field of vision or more of it if they were in front of it and could be really engulfed in it um and yeah a lot of the smaller objects are like things you could hold or mm -hmm. they feel really delicate um yeah and and like a lot of that work for me is um like i think a lot about in terms of supports and and how people can kind of this gets back into the more social side of my practice but i like to think about it as examples for how something could be made up of a lot of distinct pieces and they re that are kind of making something larger, but still retain their individuality. Um, so yeah, that that's that's something that I was thinking about a lot. Like and you're not stuff. talking within a single object; you're talking about like the entire both. Well, both. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So like, there was a lot of object, like like work stacked on top of each other, or um, like paintings on a larger painting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Or yeah. like. Uh, a sculpture on a sheet of paint mm -hmm. that's on the ground, um, things like that. And there are also ways that the work was engaged with the architecture of the space mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. So you became, or I became really aware of the way I was navigating the space and, um, and the way that I felt about the ceiling or like this, you know, window or, um, that, that there were these pieces that um, they weren't necessarily depending on the architecture per se, but they were engaged in the architecture 
they're involved in some way. Yeah, there was a there was a phone book piece that you took and turned into like a three dimensional asterisk by like coating it in paint. So you took the phone book and opened it up so that it became a full spiral, and it was hung like in the upper right corner of one of the galleries, and it was very I think it was purplish or something, but it was very like iconic and. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but, you know, I mean, I'm drawn towards books and I kind of like visually recognized something about it. You know what I mean? It right. Was... Well, and like Alana was saying, like it, it like drew her attention to like the height of the room. Yeah. And when you're talking yeah. about especially doing a piece that is the, you know, that is the length of a outstretched An arm span, arm span yeah. mm-hmm. like that's that draws attention to not just the piece or your, you know, you as the viewer, your arm span, but also like every standard door is right. is sized specifically it's a you know it's a scripted the whole the space is scripted thanks norman like like to to fit you into it and and when you're in los angeles i'm sure everywhere but los angeles especially has a lot of like wacky contracting that went on and like wacky architecture like and by wacky i mean sometimes really bad you know right. so like there's these accidental moments where things fit or don't fit your your body and so spaces like in that gallery that phone book up on the ceiling like it's it wasn't a standard like 12 foot ceiling it was a little higher yeah it's at like this point where the ceiling is a little bit lower when you first walk in right so it's like and then it goes up and so it's like there's like two corners there kind of right and um so it's kind of a mistake but a mistake built on top of this standard size and it and it pulls it pulls you and like your physical relationship to the architecture just into that that uh architectural anomaly right yeah totally. yeah and yeah and that kind of reminds me of um another piece in the show that was this it was almost like a half of a a desk or some sort of of a chair chair Uh um that was supporting like a small sculpture of a flower. And yeah, just going back to your point, Ben, about the architecture of LA, it's like um, people create these really interesting kind of workarounds or (laughs) um, spaces to suit their needs, right? right? Um, And and that, that sculpture really reminded me of that, of just like, okay, I need something to put this flower on and I'm just going to kind of this industriousness, like I'm going to make this work with what I have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's definitely like, I think a lot about like the economy of objects and using things that are pretty available, um, which I think does kind of come out of living in Los Angeles and the architecture here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then even with like that broken chair, there was like part of it that was broken after I started using it so then I had to like find something to fill the second broken part so Mm. that I could use the broken chair like so yeah so I think that logic is almost repeated in that piece Mm -hmm. yeah and the economy that you use with performance in terms of um, using strategies of subtlety or of um, you know undetectability slash hyper detectability like the performance you did with Guan where you guys were cutting up onions, uh-huh. um, for example. D- describe that one, too. We, we were, um, it was a six-hour performance where we were going, we were 
trying to count all the feelings we had during that time period. And then if one of us had a feeling, um, either physical or emotional, that the other one didn't have, we would try to recreate that feeling for the other person, which ultimately, like, I don't think it ever worked. It always led to, like, other feelings. So it kept on, like, kind of spiraling out. And this is Guan Rong. Guan Rong, who, yeah. who I do a show on K-Chung with called No... Um, every Monday from eight to nine. Tune in. Tune in. Um, PM. Well, right. <laughs> no K shows from eight to nine a.m. Um, well, let's switch it up. Let's talk about some of the stuff that you've done on your own. And by let's, I mean John. Yeah. Um. So I was in Alana's studio today, and she had like a wall of of printouts of listening horns. Um, is that the right term, listening horn? Yeah, I, I think they're called ear trumpets. Ear trumpets. Ear trumpets. Okay. It's way funnier. Yeah. Um, and and for the past, I want to say, like, two or three years, you've been Alana's been creating sculptures that work as listening devices for different people. Um, there was some insult, installed at Side Street and at a, and, at a show that, she did with Audrey Chan and that's that's side street project side street in projects Angeles. in yeah. Pasadena. Pa- Pasadena. My bad. Yeah. My bad. And, um, with Audrey Chan and Chan and man mm. at Otis college, Ben Maltzen gallery, nice. <laughs> where there was like these giant listening devices that were set up, um, like giant ear trumpets that people would put their go inside of and use. Um, and that kind of stems out of her interest in listening which through Alana's work, I've come to learn so much about listening and like yeah. how, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I feel like I always would have said it's important, but I feel like I l- realize so often now that people, not a lot of people are listening sometimes. <laughs> um, and it's a really like that awareness has, is a really like pol- altered my political consciousness about how people engage with each other. Um, can you can you talk about listening for us? Yeah. Well, no. I'm. I mean, I'm glad that it's really great. Thank you for saying that. Um, uh, yeah. So the the horns that um, that John was describing, they were based off of listening technology from World War One and World War Two. Yeah. Sound like as when weapons. You're, when yeah. you're hard of hearing, kind of thing like that. <laughs> no, no, no. Giant long. like rows of cannons that were. Giant oh, tr- right, I'll course, let you do yeah. it. But I'm sorry. Some yeah. there was the larger sculptures are based off of the military tech, yes. but the wall of smaller things is that too, or is that no. more like hearing aids? Descri- yeah. We're asking you too many questions at once, but you <laughs> we're must, very excited about listening, must but we're talking so describe much. <laughs> this this image that we're both thinking of right now. Yeah, of World War One. Yeah, British, possibly French officers, and this mm-hmm. go. Yeah. So as I was researching listening really broadly. Um, and I came up, I came across these images of listening technology that militaries from all around the world used during World War One and World War Two, and in between, of course. Um, but there, this was before the invention of radar, um, so the height of technology was passive sound um, collection. And so they were using structures like parabolic mirrors and other sorts of shapes 
um, and then horn shapes that literally collect sound and different frequencies of sound. So I was so taken by these images of these devices um, because they just sculpturally look incredible and the function follows the form, the form follows the function. So you can totally see how they work by just looking at them. Whereas nowadays, most of the technology we use doesn't work like that necessarily. Um, and so I, I also was so curious about how these things sounded. I really wanted to know, like, what's the sound quality and, and how does this collect sound and reverberate or um, uh, echo or whatever? Um, and so I built, I've built a number of them. And the trumpet shape, for example, really amplifies low frequencies, which makes a lot of sense. Um, if you think about it, because the the way that they were used was to listen for oncoming airstrikes. Mm. So to hear planes, uh, engines from far away was really important. Um, and certainly back in the teens and in the 30s and 40s, it was just quieter in the world. So being able to mm -hmm. hear long further distances um, was was really crucial. And even after radar was invented, they were still using these sorts of technologies. Um, and so, so the idea is to sort of repurpose them to kind of say like, well, now that we have radar, um, how, what's our relationship with these devices or these kinds of ways of listening now? And, and how could these sculptures work differently? Um, and, and more recently, I've been looking into more handheld devices that would be for a few people or two people in conversation rather than through some sort of military campaign. <laughs> and um, uh, and so I started researching um, listen hearing devices, hearing aids, basically, um, from like the 1800s and early 1900s. And those devices, they're not mass produced because it was kind of before that ability to sort of mass produce hearing aids. Um, so most of them were made for specific individuals in mind. Um, and some of them are just these incredible forms and shapes and creations. And, and also um, a number, some of them are just kind of conspicuously hearing aids and other ones are attempt to hide their function so they'll be like in the shape of flowers for example mm -hmm. or they'll be um <laughs> right under someone's beard or literally right, yeah. inserted in a woman's hairdo um and john you said like it the way that alana talked about listening and the way she's incorporating it into her work altered your like yeah your i mean politics it, to just expound I, on that or maybe i became more aware of how listening was a political act um and how just yeah like i feel like it's a, a thing that is really really important to kind of like basic human interaction that isn't really thought of as such or isn't emphasized as such you'll un unwrap it as a political act i mean that's a very interesting thing to say um i'll listen to you well I think like who listens to who is is a big part of that and when do certain people listen to others 
Um, so like the hierarchy of listening, like what makes certain people listen to others and why do some people only listen to some people or like stuff like that, I think is something I've become a lot more aware of. Um, yeah. yeah. It's like another, oh, sorry. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I, that was my initial interest in listening was to think about the, the political and social implications and it still is. Um, people really think of political acts in terms of speaking right. Um, right. and they see listening as really passive um, and they don't see listening as an active. Right. It's the, it's the other half of who has a voice, who has a political voice, who has a social voice, right? And that's mm -hmm. the way that we phrase it in general, right? But this is the same thing, but on the other end, right? Yeah. yeah. Like it's not just who has a voice, but who's, who's listening to that right. voice. And right. I feel like that's especially relevant now where it's like, like it's really easy for people or it's a, more easy than ever for people to have an audience because of social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like the, the quality of like receivership has really like accelerated at <laughs> yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that just, um, if, just as like an icon like these sculptures work really well for like emphasizing that yeah so the the initial my initial work with listening was more performative and involved groups or um collective action or ephemeral type of um type of stuff and and then i was really i wasn't totally satisfied because i felt like okay, I'm a visual artist and, and how do I make this invisible act that's incredibly important and potent, um, how do I make it into a visual form or, or some sort of symbolic imagery? Um, so that's been something that I've been working on, just a question. And, and I actually think that it's, that question has really just been so delightful to think about is like, because I think it's a question that all artists for in one way or another grapple with. Like, how do we make something that's invisible visible? Mm -hmm. Or why why would you bother? Why should you bother? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Why not just write it down? <laughs> right. Or say it say it out loud. <laughs> or on the radio. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and there was there was a you did a I can't remember the name of the performance performance, I'm gonna call it, at actually at Occupy, which I thought was very intelligent and I didn't know at that time, your work with listening, but can you talk about that project that you did there? Sure. Um, I started working with a group of artists back in 2010, 2011, um, and we called ourselves Arla. We were a collective that was investigating the work of Pauline Oliveros, who's an incredible composer and has pioneered a whole way of creating music and thinking about sound called deep listening. Um, and we in particular were looking at her sonic meditations and other works that she's done as well. Um, and since all of the work that she creates is for groups for the most part, besides her own solo improvisational work or um, improvisation with people. and. So it was myself, Vera Brennersung, who's a filmmaker, Kristen Smarowski, who's a choreographer, and Juliana Snapper, who's a musician. And um, 
So we were just working amongst the four of us. And then when the Occupy movement happened, Juliana and I both independently saw connections with what was happening with Occupy and what we were doing as a collective um, in this idea of opening up a space for um, for voices that really hadn't been heard or weren't being listened to. Um, you know, the 99% are this, this disenfranchised mass group that um, really didn't have anyone listening to them and all of a sudden were had a voice or at least were were speaking out loud Mm -hmm. in a way that was new and um and also there was a technology called the people's microphone that um in which one speaker's voice is amplified amongst a crowd um by just a simple sort of repeat structure so i would say hey you and then the crowd says hey you and it was a way to carry a voice through a crowd without electronic amplification. And Julian and I were just really intrigued and excited by that technology and um, and wanted to bring our questions of listening and Pauline's work to Occupy and um, to see what kind of spaces of listening were happening at Occupy. So we went down there a number of times and did listening workshops and which involved things like listening parades where we paraded around Occupy with these paper, giant paper mache ears that we had made. Um, and uh, we also performed some of Pauline's work and work that we had created with each other. Um, and the thing that was interesting that came out of it, well, two things. Number one, it was just such a difficult space of listening. It was so loud. There was helicopters that were buzzing overhead. And we're talking about City Hall yeah. in Los Angeles, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, there was just like traffic going by, um, yelling. So it's kind of it was kind of like this space where um, you know, you wanted to hear but you also wanted to block things out too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and furthermore, it was a space of um, real contention too, because at the time that I was there, which um, wasn't right at the beginning, but maybe a few weeks had gone by, that there was a lot of, um, uh, not infighting, but people really wanted to push their agendas. Um, And so when we created this other kind of space for listening and being together, people in the encampment were really grateful to be able to be just humans with each other rather than have an agenda, so. Excellent. Amazing. Well. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 16.30 a.m. We'd like to thank our guest, John Bertle and Alana Mann, for joining us. Thank you. Thank yeah, you, guys. Thank it's been you. a pleasure. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And we're going to go out with a song by Boston band Shore Leave. It's from their self-titled first album, and the song is called Insomnia. <laughs>